last week we did uh, the first part of chapter 4. This week we're going to finish chapter 4. And then next week we'll plan to do chapter 5 and then probably go back and finish the last section of our Habits of Grace book. Take a little break from this and I'll be together there uh, in end of December and into January. So just a quick update on where we've been, where we're going. Uh, you will start on the right-hand column where it says, How then does righteousness of faith transform thinking, desire, and action? And just a quick review from last week, we were talking about the idea of the, dyna the dynamic heart being redeemed, that Jesus accomplished what Adam failed to do, that Jesus demonstrated in faith in a way that was both an example for us and the means by which his obedient life and death makes it possible for us to be restored to God. And then um, we talked about some examples from Hebrews 11 about how faith affects the way that we live in our thoughts and our desires and our actions. And then the idea of sanctification, how we are changed from our sinful state into being like Christ. And so now we'll start on that right-hand column there where it says, How does righteousness of faith transform thinking, desire, and action? Through faith, people begin to see the world as God sees it. I'll read for you briefly this verse from Matthew. Matthew 13, 15, it talks about the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, with their eye, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart in return, and I would heal them. And then Jesus said to those he's teaching to, Blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. Truly I say, many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And so in that context, he is rebuking those in Israel who were hearing his words, seeing his miracles, all of these sorts of things, but they did not understand. In contrast, the disciples were beginning to see the world as Jesus was teaching them to see it. God grants Christians the mind of Christ so that they can discern spiritual truths they were incapable of discerning before. Uh, someone want to read 1 Corinthians 2, 7 to 16? Who would like to do that for us? 1 Corinthians 2, 7 to 16. Uh, through the end of the chapter, if you would, please. Okay. 
So in the context, Paul is contrasting man's wisdom with God's wisdom. And it's important to understand here, sometimes people have taken this in such a way that it basically says Christians understand the world better than people around them just in a broad and sweeping kind of sense. Um, so if we go down that line of thinking, we would say something like, well, a Christian engineer must automatically be better than a non-Christian engineer because he possesses God. Is that the point that Paul's making here? No. What, what Paul is saying, though, is even though the mind apart from God can recognize and know truth to some extent, we need the power of the Spirit working in us to see the spiritual significance of the things that we know. So verse 14, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to them. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. So, for example, someone could read something Paul says about idolatry. And he could know what the words mean, and he could say, okay, maybe those are true. But is he going to do anything in his life that acts based on that knowledge? No, because he doesn't possess God's Spirit. So he has no ability to change his life based on truth, and he has no desire to do so because he looks at it and he says, that doesn't make any sense. You know, somebody says something like, Paul says, uh, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Can an unsaved person read those words and know what they mean grammatically speaking? Yeah. Are they going to agree with it? I mean, they're not going to live their life that way though, right? No, because... That seems like a, 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 a not a reasonable sort of trade-off to them. The Apostle Paul regularly prayed for saints to be granted knowledge of Christ. While this knowledge involves more than accurate truth of who he is and what he has done, it is certainly not less. What's the difference between faith and knowledge? Because that might be a helpful thing for us to think about for a moment. Okay, good. Evan, come here for a minute. You've probably seen this illustration. Evan, what is this here? What can, what can chairs typically do? Hold you up. Do you, do you have faith in that chair? I think so. Okay, go ahead. No, I'm not going to pull it out. <laughs> so until he sits down... He can say, I have all the knowledge in the world about how the chair is put together, whether it should support my weight, etc., etc., etc. But until he actually sits down, he's not put his faith in it. That's not a perfect illustration. Thanks, I appreciate it. It is, a it is an illustration, though, of what we're talking about. The natural man knows that it's a chair, sees that it's a chair, maybe agrees that it could hold him up, doesn't want to put his trust in it. Uh, what do you mean? Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, the reality would be that um, if what God has said is true about himself, then when we sit down on the chair, so to speak, 
he is not going to let us down in the ways that other worldly philosophies look good. Yeah, this is something to, to rest my faith on. And then you, you know, the leg goes out from under you because you realize it's not genuine truth. Uh, Paul says some related things, for example, in Colossians 1, 9, and 10. He says, For this reason also, since we, the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And so Paul prayed regularly along these lines for their knowledge of God to grow, but not just so that they possess knowledge, but so that it would transform their lives. Similarly, the Apostle John insists that faith involves the acceptance of a defined message, a report of truths both witnessed and proclaimed. Turn over to 1 John 1, if you would. 
rather than understanding the world from a limited set of beliefs formed from the opinions of family and culture, observations made over the years, testimonies accepted as trustworthy or the priorities of the media, the Holy Spirit helps Christians perceive the world from a different center of beliefs. Christians have a battle within old and new control beliefs play king of the hill. What are some examples of, first of all, opinions of family and culture that we might hold to be true? Think about, like, things your mom told you growing up. And they might very well be true, but what would be an example of something like that? Okay. Let me use a different one here. Okay. All right. Second uh, thing that he mentioned there was uh, observations made over the years. What's something that maybe you've observed that you believe is true? Okay. We could just say sun comes up every day, right? All right. And then the third category he mentions is testimonies accepted as trustworthy. What are some things that people around you have told you that you feel like you believe or could believe or would be true? It's kind of connected to the first one, but it may be from people other than your parents or authority figures when you're young. Right? Okay. Uh, you said New York to Nebraska? All right. <laughs> All right. And then the fourth one is things that are priorities of the media. What is something that the news media would have us to believe is true. Just give me an example of something like that. Okay. All news is fake. Okay. <laughs> Which uh, poses interesting problems for their authority structure. But, all right. So let's think about these for example. Will you catch a cold if you go outside with wet hair? I think it depends on how good your immune system is, right? But it might not be so much the wet hair as the... Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So this one we'll put a question mark next to, and um, you can tell your mom later that you told, didn't agree with what she told you when you were growing up. All right, general observations. Sun comes up every day. We think that's true? I think we would say that one's true. However, with the problem with observation is this. Well, let me ask you, what's the problem with observation? What are some of the challenges or limitations of it? Cloudy day. Okay, it could be a cloudy day. What'd you say, Kyle? You don't see everything. So when someone says something, what's that? Okay, good, good. So let's say the statement wasn't the sun comes up every day. Let's say the statement was a negative. 
there are no dinosaurs alive today. Even with our vast resources of technology, can we prove that statement? No, proving a negative is very difficult. Um, even if it was a positive statement, there are dinosaurs somewhere in Africa. That would be a really hard statement to know for sure if it's true. For the reasons that we've mentioned, things like we have limited powers of observation, there are restrictions on us being able to observe everything. Uh, not so much in this case is it a spiritual matter, like Bruce was pointing out, but the reality is we can observe things and, and not interpret them properly, which is probably be where that, would, where that would tie in or have a wrong definition, something along those lines. So that's some of the limitations of observation. Uh, some of the limitations of this, where do, where do these sorts of statements come from usually? Why do we say them to our kids? Because our parents said them to us, right? Right, right. And there's nothing wrong with, I mean, there, there's this tension. We don't want to be in a skeptical mood and mode and question everything our parents ever tell us. At the same time, there is a place for asking ourselves, is this actually true, and, and why is it true, and those sorts of things. Um, what about this one? Uh, testimonies from people that you accept as true, things about family history and those sorts of things. I mean, as far as we know, Reddit is a reliable source, and the people that she got that information from would say the same thing. What if I said to you, I came from New York to Michigan in a covered wagon? Would you believe me or not? Yeah. Yeah. So, right, right. I mean, there's, there, there's reasons to suspect that that testimony in this day and age versus, you know, 100 years ago or more, you know. So, um, so again, this one we would say is true, but this category of things is only as good as the source that you're getting it from. And then something like this, uh, maybe instead of saying all, we would say most news is fake except the stuff that we're telling you. I, I was having a discussion with a guy, I, not a discussion with a guy, I was reading something someone had posted, and this particular person was saying, the reason that this company is telling you buy my product is so they can make money. You don't need to worry about that. But he was someone who was also trying to sell a product and not using their product meant he could sell his for cheaper. Is there a reason to be slightly suspicious of his motives in that statement? Yeah, I mean, even if what he is saying is true, he has, there's a conflict of interest. He has a vested interest in keeping his costs down by not using their expensive product in the production of his thing. And so the problem with something like this, most news is fake, again, it comes down to the reliability of the source. It comes down to the fact that misinformation is spread so readily, um, which, you know, a hundred years ago, the same thing happened to some degree. We called it gossip, right? Um, gossip has become like a general feature of our culture, and now we call it fake news. And the bottom line is we should be more cautious about all the things that we hear and are, are prone to repeating. And so, again, this is probably one of those where it's either a question or it's not true. How is the knowledge that we find in the Bible different than these sorts of things? 
It's true. Okay, okay, good. So all of the limitations of these sorts of ideas don't apply to God and don't apply to the scriptures. Um, when God transforms our thinking, he is changing, he, he talked in earlier chapters about the idea of control beliefs, control values, control commitments, I think were the three things that he said. Right now we're talking about this idea of control beliefs. There, there are several important things going on here. One is the reliability of the, uh, the truth that the belief is based on. Because it comes from God, we can trust it 100%. Another thing to focus on is the, the centrality of that particular idea. Let's say that this is true. If we think about the things that the Bible emphasizes, does that align with the most important things that the Bible says? It's not at the center of what the Bible says is most important, right? Um, so, that being said, if, my, if I make it my goal in life to persuade people of this idea, above all others, or to the exclusion of all others, are my, are the things that I think are most important in my priority structure in my mind, are they lined up with what the Bible says is most important? No. What are some of the things the Bible says are most important that we ought to know and that we ought to tell to others? Jesus. Right. So, I haven't seen it to be a problem in our church. I just mention it because I think it illustrates the point well. If you become convinced of... I'll take something silly that hopefully nobody would be offended at. Um, if you are convinced that the ShamWow is the best thing that was ever invented... Anybody you guys remember seeing that on TV? No? It was before your time, Evan? I just say that because I think I found one in the garage the other day that I don't know where it came from, but um, a cleaning product, probably a decent cleaning product if used the right way. If I orient my life around telling people this is the best thing ever and you should buy this and whatever, that's a pretty shallow focus for my life, right? The same is true about any other product, movement, idea, etc., that is not Jesus and the Bible and what God is doing in the world. Is it wrong to hold something like the idea of the ShamWow loosely as sort of a peripheral thing that I feel like is helpful and useful? Sure. If I say, you know what, I've found that this kind of mulch works well in my garden, I'll probably say something to people about it. But if that's the only thing I ever talk to people about, I am not doing what God wants me to do. And that's part of what he's trying to say here with this idea of our control beliefs shifting. When we are unbelievers, or when we are new believers, or when we are immature believers, our central beliefs tend to be oriented around things that are not the most important things. And what God is hopefully doing in the process of sanctification is changing us such that our control beliefs, the things that we say are most important, are the things that God says is most important, 
and then that becomes the foundation for the next thing which is our control values because if we believe a particular thing then we're going to value it and say this is what I desire this is what I want this is what other people should want for example um, quickly before we move on to that though page 79 says this because sanctification has an initial progressive and future aspect no one's beliefs are perfectly restored in this life all believers maintain some false beliefs prioritize various accurate beliefs differently than God instructs or remain ignorant of some beliefs they ought to have what does this then demand of all of us if we're not there yet what do all of us have to do toward one another okay help each other along and pray and what what what's that okay yeah be patient was what I was thinking but that's another way of saying it so we have to recognize none of us have arrived and God's word is the rule so whoever says it to us or however it comes up if it matches up with what scripture says I have to obey it you have to obey it all of us have to continually be in this process of correcting wrong beliefs report reprioritizing our beliefs according to the pattern of scripture we'll skip that question because we kind of addressed it a moment ago faith introduces a set of control values under which all other values are organized God becomes the control desire in suffering believers mourn oppression even as they look to God for refuge I'm gonna turn to that page because I may read you a little bit more of the, the, the fuller quote because I think this is this is a, a very important point for us to understand uh, Psalm 73 is the whom am I in heaven but you there is nothing on earth I desire beside you my flesh and heart may fail but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever God becomes the control desire so lesser desires do not rule the heart in suffering believers mourn oppression even as they look to God for refuge my soul why are you cast down within me hope in God for I will yet praise him for the help of my countenance because he is my God that phrase is repeated I think three times in those two Psalms back to back there in distress believers express their fear to God anticipating relief from him illustrated by Psalm 13 believers feel a newfound disgust for wickedness and a righteous anger toward things like adultery. 2 Peter 2, Psalm 31, verse 6. Even enjoyment of earthly riches becomes Godward in its expression as thankfulness rather than stopping with mere pleasure. Uh, 1 Timothy 6 talks about that with regard to riches and our attitude toward them. A believer's delight in God will also result in a delight for his word above any earthly source of benefit or gain. Just like the mind is renewed so that new control beliefs push out old false ones, these new affections also wage war against the old. Jesus taught the affections were an essential aspect of following him when he famously said, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He knew that valuing money more than God would ground a heart from its eternal destiny. People created in the eternal image of God condemn themselves to become as short-lived as the money they love so dearly, Instead, Christ changes believers' desires so that life's joys and sorrows would not rise or fall according to small matters of personal wealth and pleasure, but they are anchored in eternal matters of significance. 
Galatians 5, 16 to 17 describes faith as a battle of desires. I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The flesh is against the Spirit. Those of the Spirit are against the flesh. They are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. We are supposed to value things that are eternal. Our flesh desires us to value things that are temporal. God's Spirit pushes us back toward what we're supposed to be doing. He illustrates this with regard to the flow of the Chicago River. They flooded the river with new water from Lake Michigan, which pushed the old sewer water away from the city, creating a new flow. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing in our hearts. There is corruption, there is pollution, there is muck in our hearts, and the work of the Holy Spirit is purging that out of us. And that's a difficult process because things are going to keep coming up and we're going to say, but I want to do this. You talk to your, this is particularly clear in children and we try to become more clever about it as we become adults. Why did you do that? Because I wanted this. Why did you hit your sister? I wanted her toy. Okay. What does God say we ought to want? To please him. How do we please him? Kindness. Showing love to other people. Is hitting that person because you want their toy? Does that match up with what God wants you to do? No. We do the same thing as adults. We just do it in more complex ways, right? Sometimes. Believers do not only repent of old desires, they also help ask the Spirit to help them value what He values, to find desirable what He says is good. This is how the fruit of the Spirit comes to characterize a believer's heart. They grow in their love for God's character and are thus shaped to imitate Him in love, joy, peace, patience, and so on, according to Galatians 5, 11, and 12. Skip down to the next quote. I'm just summarizing the passages for sake of time, but the next quote there from page 81. Faith values God above all other objects in creation, even for things God created good. People can sinfully desire objects that are not in themselves sinful. People may value things that God himself values, a godly spouse, secure job, peace in a difficult relationship, but the level of value they assign to it supersedes the value they place on God's promised presence through Jesus Christ. Faith is the check that keeps healthy desires healthy, for it orders desire for created good under desire for the Creator. What this means for believers' emotional life is that they are no longer exclusively characterized by the depression, fear, and anger that would overwhelm them apart from faith. Depression is injected with joy. Fear is cut through with peace. Anger is blunted by patience. I think he's making an important point here. Um, and we'll get more into the subject of emotions in just a second. Um, quick aside. Minor quibble, but something to think about. Should we describe a state of feeling down as depression or as discouragement, biblically speaking? Probably discouragement. What is the advantage of describing it in that way? Okay. Okay. Good. And what if we, what if we also describe some of those feelings in terms of worry or fear? What is the, what is to be gained by thinking of them in that way? Okay, if it's a sin, God has a solution for it, right? 
if it's a condition, maybe. Maybe somebody can help us out. So, again, I think that there are a variety of biblical words that we can use to overlap. And maybe we'd say something like sorrow instead of discouragement. But if you overlap words like sorrow, fear, and worry, those, I think, more accurately capture what's going on with what people describe as depression. And without going into an extended detail about all the causes of those sorts of things and all of the solutions for them, God does have answers for things like fear, worry, and sorrow. The Bible does not have immediate solutions for words like um, depression and, and so on and so forth. So again, I think the book is a solid book overall. I wish he'd used some of those terms, but I think maybe he's using some of those terms because they're ones that people can relate to. Yes? I would say that if we, all right, so let's think about some of the different reasons that you may be having those feelings. If the reason that you're having those feelings is because you know there's something that God wants you to do and you're not doing it, and then it's making you feel a particular way, then I would say the answer would probably be no because the solution would be to deal with the sin issue that's going on in your heart. Let's say that's not what's going on. Let's say that the reason that you're feeling down is because you're exhausted. At that point, what do you need? You need rest. You don't need to go be more busy. You need to back off and rest. Meditate on scripture as you fall asleep, those sorts of, yes, but you need rest. So, um, so sometimes, like with grief, sometimes people said the solution is grief. To grief is to go do something for other people. And I agree there's something beneficial in that from the perspective of the more that we sit around, the more that we're going to feel the weight of that grief. That being said, to some extent we may merely be delaying the point at which we have to deal with the grief. And when I say deal with the grief, what do I believe about God in connection with this circumstance? What do I desire in this circumstance? What am I doing in this circumstance? And sometimes we delay dealing with those things or we try to avoid them entirely by merely getting busy. Once we have dealt with sin issues and issues of wrong beliefs, wrong desires, etc., then I would say, yes, there is a place for saying, you know what, I'm not going to solve this all today. And so God still calls me to do things and help people and, and serve them, even though I'm not fully, even though, I mean, so if someone close to you dies, that's not something that you get over in a day maybe months, it may be years, it may be to some extent never, although I think the grief does become less pointed with time. So initially there needs to be, if I'm angry at God about this, 
I need to deal with that. If I'm exhausted because it's been an overwhelming burden, someone going through sickness, someone going through death, those things wear you out. So there's a time and a place for rest. A month down the line, if you're sitting at home and you feel upset at God, sorry for yourself, some of those sorts of things, there may be benefit in looking for opportunities to serve other people, be encouraged by them, those sorts of things, have Christian fellowship. But at that point, it would be different than just, I'm getting busy so that I'm not dealing with the thing over here. I, I don't know if that helps to answer your question somewhat. What, what you're saying, I think it has a place, but we also need to think about all the other things that are going into the situation. Is that helpful? Yeah, and it's not always a sin issue, too. So sometimes it's just, I'm exhausted. Sometimes it's just, this is a huge thing to work through. So I mention sin because sometimes it's a sin. If I'm depressed, sorrowful, whatever, because I've been irresponsible, that's a sin issue. If I am feeling the way that we're talking about because... I've not gotten enough sleep for weeks on end or because there are unreasonable pressures being placed on me, all those sorts of things, the be you're not going to be as helpful as you might think to someone else in that circumstance. You, you need rest. You need a break. You need God to restore and to sustain you. What are some other thoughts that you all have on that, on that subject? other passages of scripture, other other ideas along those lines that might be helpful thinking about this. Good, yeah. I 
So to one other thing that I guess I was thinking, Sandra, related to your question. Um, sometimes the reason that we feel a particular way is because we have expectations that are placed on us, things that, you know, these kinds of things. Um, and uh, sometimes we have to look at God's Word and say, you know what? I don't need to carry that burden that someone told me. I mean, somebody told me one time the reason that my grandpa's church went the way that it did was because um, of some particular decision that he made. In hindsight, I don't think that their assessment was true. But I carried that burden around for a while and it skewed my perspective of him and all of those sorts of things. In a similar sense, people can put expectations on us that are not biblical about you need to be a certain way, look a certain way, feel a certain way, whatever. And if they are not, if they are merely this person's idea of what is best instead of what God says we must do, then we need to be careful. Then the second thing that I was thinking about, kind of to wrap this up for this morning, is sometimes we have the idea that the solution to a particular problem is found in a, uh, in a new method or something like that. And to tie it back into the other study that we were doing, the Habits of Grace one, word, prayer, and fellowship. Listening to Christian music, not on that list. Good? Sure. I, take advantage of it. Listening to sermons, good. They can maybe fall under the, the word part of it. Um, being busy, not necessarily one of those things unless it's connected with fellowship or with word or with prayer or flowing out of those three things. So again, sometimes people just want to pile things into the Christian life. If you're a good Christian, you're going to do this and this and this and this and this and this and this and, this, and you've got this and this and this and this and this. You've got, you've got blogs, you've got music to listen to, you've got checklists to do and, and it becomes this insane pressure when what God has said is very simple. Not easy, but simple. It's not like 50 steps to pleasing me. It's, here's truth in my word. Believe it. Here's what I say is important. Value it. Here's what I've said to do. Do it. And the means that you're going to be encouraged through that is by saturating yourself in my word, spending time in prayer, being in fellowship with other believers, and all of the other things, just like all the things that people expect churches to do, have this program and that program and go over here and, and do this thing. And all. There's a very limited set of things God has said we must do in the church. So let's focus on doing those things. And the same is true in our Christian lives. There's a limited set of things that we must do that will help us to please God. So let's make sure we're doing those things because that's what God has called us to do specifically. We'll finish this up. Uh, next week, next, uh, next Sunday school hour, talk about the emotion part and then the action part uh, because I think those two things are important. I think it's been good discussion this morning. Let's close with prayer. Lord, as we look at these truths, I pray that you would give us the freedom that we find in you that your word has said what we must do. There are so many ideas floating around there about the way our lives ought to look. And if they're not tied to your word, they're not burdens we need to carry. Help us to find that freedom as we look at the truth of your word. 
help us to see where you said we ought to do something and we haven't made it important in our lives. But Lord, help us also to see that we're just called to follow you faithfully. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.